what a lovely introduction. I am so happy to be here with all of you. And I'm so happy that you're here. No organization does more to help and support and to promote young conservative women than the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. This is such a fantastic organization, one that has helped me tremendously over the last two decades of my life. I first got involved back in the 1990s. I was attending the National Conservative Student Conference in Washington, D.C. I hope that some of you are familiar with this amazing conference. It's run by Young America's Foundation. It is the largest and longest running conservative conference for college students in the country. And the Center for Conservative Women hosts a luncheon at this amazing conference every year. And that's first when I became acquainted with Michelle Easton, the founder and the president of the Center for Conservative Women, and all of the amazing young women who have worked for the center over the years. Well, back in the 90s, there were so few women involved with the conservative movement that those of us who attended this conference could all fit around one small boardroom. Michelle's laughing because she remembers that. <laughs> now, if you go to this conference, if you go to the National Conservative Student Conference, and if you attend the ladies' luncheon hosted by the Center for Conservative Women, there are so many young women at this program that it fills an entire hall. It is very, very inspiring. And it really is a testament to the excellent work that the center does. So that was a very important experience for me. Uh, but I followed that up with perhaps an even more important experience. And that was when I went back to my college campus, Rutgers, and hosted a conservative speaker through the support of the center. I hosted Washington Times columnist Suzanne Fields. She gave a great presentation about the dangers of feminism um, and empowering young women. It was very well received. But I had never done anything like that before in my life. And I had no idea how to do it, but I did it with the support of the center. And I had to do everything for the event. I had to organize the event. I had to promote the event put up provocative posters to get students to attend the event. I had to introduce Suzanne Fields at the podium. It was the first time I'd ever done anything like that before. I was terrified, and I was terrible, by the way. But that was also a really great experience. Uh, but most importantly, that was the experience that made me realize that I wanted to pursue a career in the conservative movement. And that's what I did. After a year of law school at Seton Hall Law School, in New Jersey. I moved down to Washington, D.C., uh, finished up my law degree at George Mason, which is now the uh, Antonin Scalia Law School, and I've had a really exciting and satisfying last 20 or so years in the conservative movement. So I'm so happy that you're here. I'm very passionate about the topic of today's talk, uh, which is how to sabotage your career in five easy steps. Now, truth be told, you don't actually have to accomplish all five steps. Sometimes it can just take one. So what this, what this really is, is an outline of five common pitfalls uh, for young people and specifically for young women. And this is coming some from my own personal experience uh, and some from just getting the opportunity to work with many interns and many young people throughout the years. I'm hoping that you can learn from the mistakes of some of the young people that I have spent time with. From here on out, um, a lot of your consequences uh, will have, there will be consequences of your actions that will be long-lasting. 
you know, to a large extent, you do get a pass um, for your college years, some of the mistakes that you make on college campuses. But once you're off campus and you are in the professional realm, you really are going to be judged by professional standards. And that also goes for your personal life. A lot of what happens in your personal life really can bleed over and affect your professional life as well. It's a small world. You know, a lot of you who are interning right on, now on the Hill probably realize that. Um, you might be very surprised that everybody sort of seems to know everybody else. And news travels fast. Um, and often it's just one phone call and asking somebody, oh, you know, this, this intern would um, spend some time in your office, tell me about that person. And I can really limit some of your opportunities moving forward. Well, the conservative movement is similarly very, very small. So I'm going to launch into it. So the first way to sabotage your career um, is to take some advice that I think is very well-meaning. Um, it's probably advice that your parents have given you throughout your lives and other mentors in your life have given you. Um, and probably advice that you were given before you came to DC for this internship. And that is to be yourself, okay? So let's think about why this is really terrible advice. So in your career, to be optimally successful, you need to be professional and hardworking, thoughtful, disciplined, kind, knowledgeable, wise, and just overall very impressive, right? So reflect on this a little bit. Ask yourself, are you as professional, hardworking, thoughtful, disciplined, kind, knowledgeable, wise, and as overall impressive as you strive to be, as you know that you need to be? Or is there something else that you need to maybe work on to improve? Now, of course, it's absurd to think that you're all finished products. It's absurd to think that any of us is a finished product. And in fact, if you spend time talking to anybody who has been successful in their career, they will tell you it, they are constantly educating themselves, constantly trying to improve, constantly trying to make better decisions, take advantage of more opportunities, be more virtuous. Um, be more successful in all areas of their life. This idea of a static self, um, that you are a certain way, that you're defined by your past experiences and your insecurities and whatever personal and professional shortcomings you have, um, it's absolute hogwash and it's really dangerous. I want to give you an example of how this can hold back young people in their career. Um, I've heard this a lot from young people throughout the years. This statement of, well, I'm not the kind of person that, okay? You've all heard different people say this. I'm not the kind of person uh, who cares too much about the way she looks. Well, you can see how that can be limiting. Uh, you can see how a young woman who goes into an office situation and says, well, I'm not the kind of person who cares too much about the way she looks, how she can prevent herself from developing a more professional look, which really is very important to be taken seriously. It makes a statement about how serious you are about a certain job, and that's something we'll talk about in, in, in just a few minutes, too, a little bit more. Another statement I've heard is, I am not the kind of person who needs to be the center of attention. Well, you can see how this could be limiting. Uh, this could prevent a young person from making a suggestion in a meeting or taking advantage of an exciting opportunity to get some public speaking experience. Um, I realized at a very early age how limiting this was. And I'm going to tell you a little personal story. When I was in college, I got an internship at the Republican State Committee. 
and I was very excited about it. And I wanted to be taken seriously. I wanted to be very, very successful at this internship. I knew I wanted to have this exciting career um, in the conservative movement. And if I had looked at that internship through the lens of be yourself, that would have been problematic. Let me tell you about myself back in the 90s. I was adorable. I had this cute little blonde bob haircut. Michelle's nine again. Um, I know this is kind of dating myself a little bit, but if you all watch re uh, reruns of Nine Two Zero, hey, do you remember the college years when all the girls had their sh adorable short haircuts? That was me. The little barrettes in my hair. I wore cute little T-shirts. Hello Kitty. I was adorable. So I decided though that I wanted to be taken <laughs> seriously at this internship. So I didn't want to do anything permanent. So I didn't want to dye my hair or change my haircut or anything. So I did get some more professional clothes. And I walked into Lens Crafters with my 2020 vision. And I got myself a pair of glasses with no prescription. So that first day at my internship, I sat down with my older supervisor. And we chatted for about 20 minutes or so. And he looked at me and said, you're one of those smart girls, aren't you? <laughs> well, I was. I was one of those smart girls. And I wanted to be seen that way. And I was smart enough to recognize that my adorable self just might make that too complicated right off the bat with this very short internship once a week that I had at the state committee. You know, from there, I got a lot of responsibility early on. I had the chance to write some letters to the editor that were shown as examples to other writers around the state. And I was able to extend that short internship over the summer. You probably know that the summer internships are a little bit more competitive. It was because I was successful at that internship during the school year that I was able to extend. Okay, I want to move on to the second way you can sabotage your career, and that is to dress sexy because it's the new conservative. Now, I have a lot to say about this subject because I know a lot of you are getting really mixed messages. A lot of you are probably news junkies, right? You spend a lot of time watching Fox News. You know, Fox gets a bad reputation for having these scantily clad women on. But it's not just Fox. If you watch CNN, the women are often uh, dressed uh, inappropriately, very scantily clad. And it's, it's confusing because the women are talking about important things. And they're having these conversations on there, and it's about a serious subject matter. And the other women and the other men on the air with them they are all treating these women perfectly respectful. They're all being treated with respect. So you can see how the takeaway can be that this is what a professional woman looks like. This is what a professional woman wears. Now, complicating matters even further for women in their 20s, it can actually be kind of difficult uh, for women your age to find appropriate attire. So a lot of time, if you go and you try on a suit or a dress made for a middle-aged woman, it's not going to look right on you. It's going to look a little bit frumpy, so you'll go to the junior department. And what happens when you go to the junior department? Well, the hemline, that we could three or four inches probably higher than it should be, higher than it would ever be appropriate to wear in an office. So on that note, I'm going to tell you another personal story. When I was in my 20s, um, I was doing pretty well. So I graduated. I think I was still at the end of uh, my law school career at this point, but I was working. and. I had achieved a certain level of success. I was single, I was ambitious, I was accustomed to getting a lot of attention, and at this point I was feeling pretty confident, feeling pretty good about my career. 
And I started to let go of some of those silly concerns about not being taken seriously because, you know, I had arrived. I had already been taken seriously. I had done everything that needed to get done. So about the time I was 24 or 25, I was working at the American Tort Reform Association. And we were working on some model legislation with this prestigious law firm. So we went to the fancy law office in the middle of Washington, D.C., went to the boardroom, had this important meeting. Well, when the meeting was over, this older attorney, uh, it was just the two of us, pulled me aside and said, I need to tell you something. Your skirt is too short. Well, I would love to tell you that I looked at this woman and thanked her and went back and looked in my closet and tried to figure out how to make my wardrobe look more professional. That's not what I did. I took one look at her and thought, she wishes she looks as good in this skirt as I do. No, I didn't say that to her. I said thank you, but I sure told all my friends about it. You know, and I don't know at what point, looking back on this incident, how many years later it was, because I, I forgot about it. It happened, I forgot about it, I moved on with my career. Um, but I don't know at what point I looked back, but at some point I looked back and thought, this, and thought this woman was trying to help me. You know, what other motivation would this woman have had for pulling me aside? She didn't embarrass me. There was nobody else there. It was just the two of us. She probably saw some of herself in me, and she probably wanted to pass on some of the advice that she had had to learn the hard way. I can tell you, that's why I'm telling the story to all of you. It's a rather embarrassing story. But the reason I tell it is because there are going to be women in your life who are going to want to help you out and who are going to want to give you some advice. And I encourage you to listen um, because you can learn a lot from the women who have come before you and who have advice to pass on to you. So speaking of advice that's difficult to hear, I'm gonna move on to the third way you can sabotage your career. That is to hook up with that cute boy in your office. Now there's a lot to talk about here. And I'd like to start with an overview on dating. This is a topic of discussion that makes me so very, very sad because I hear there's no more dating anymore. I hear there's a lot of texting. I know that there's a lot of hooking up. That hookup culture was certainly in full force um, back 20 years ago when I was dating. Uh, but there still was some dating mixed in. I would like to conduct a poll, and this is really for my own purposes, I think, as much as it, it is for yours, but I would like to hear from you to know how many of you would like it if a man walked up to you, asked you out on a proper date, drove to your house, picked you up, drove you to a restaurant, had dinner with you, got to know you, had a conversation with you over dinner, drove you home asked if he could see you again, and then the following evening called you to ask how your day was. How many of you would you like that? I'm seeing every single hand here up. <laughs> I'm not surprised. You're not powerless. And as it turns out, you actually have all the power. If you don't want a text relationship with another young man, don't text him back. You know, if you don't want to have a hookup relationship with another man, don't hook up with him. 
men want desperately to rise to the occasion. They are a part of the culture every much um, as, as every much as you are. You know, I, I think that there is a lot of talk right now about young people's sense of entitlement. Right, you probably hear this all the time, and probably tired of hearing it. Well, let me just tell you that respect and dignity are two things that you are entitled to. My husband and I just celebrated our 15-year wedding anniversary. Uh, we have five children. Um, back 20 years ago or so, we went on three dates, and um, at the end of all three dates, he tried to kiss me, I gave him the cheek. We ended up becoming very good friends, and we played tennis together, and we ran together. We became friends. By the time we started dating, after we had developed a friendship, we had a very, very short engagement and uh, was, were married very, very short after that. We had an old-fashioned courtship, in a sense. Uh, we waited to be intimate until we were married. And while my decision was in line with my faith and my understanding of sacramental marriage and the purpose of the marital act, which is the conception of children, I was also aware that waiting was a good strategy to get engaged. And I can tell you that I also got engaged much faster um, than any of my friends, so that was success there. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is a nice story, but you're in your 40s and you lived in the olden days, right? You hear that from my kids all the time. You were in the olden days. That men aren't like that anymore. Well, you know, you can't force this on just any young man. It is true um, that you have to find the right one. Um, and that might mean that you have to not participate in what passes for dating this summer. Um, but it also means that there are young men out there and you can develop friendships with these men. And when they ask you, you know, when they say, what is it that you're looking for in a relationship? You can tell them, courtship, I wanna be courted. And uh, they will rise to the occasion because I think they want it just as much as you do. But as I said before, they're a product of the culture too. So, okay, those are big kind of themes for dating. I want to talk about your immediate working situation. I think this is important. <coughs> your immediate working situation now in your office and in all subsequent um, offices that you're going to work in. If you hook up with or start dating any man in your office, it will define you and your internship and your working experience. Your colleagues, they'll talk about it. Uh, they will joke about it. Your much older colleagues, some of them will be otherwise excellent husbands and fathers and respect, uh, respectable older men. They will turn into adolescent boys the second they hear that you are having a relationship with another person in the office. All of a sudden, you know, ooh, where did Betty and Sam go? Oh, they went to make something coffee. They've been gone a long time. You know, you have to, you have to trust me here. Uh, there is a uh, desire for people to gossip and if you give the office an opportunity to gossip about uh, you dating somebody in the office um, it's going to mean you're going to be the topic of a lot of conversations so my advice as a rule don't date um, sometimes you're going to have to make an exception to that rule you, you find a young man that you, you really think um, is worth dating but, but, but have the rule be not to date and then find ways to work in an exception um, when, when needed. Um, 
Okay, so again, so this will be what your colleagues will remember. Um, so there, there are so many interns that go through our offices, and most of them you really most of them are forgettable. So you want to be able to uh, define what it is that you are remembered by. You want to control what your colleagues know about you. Which leads me to the fourth way you can sabotage your career, and that is to overshare. This is important because we live in an age of social media where if you didn't post it on social media, it didn't happen. You know, your generation also has a much more casual relationship with your parents than my generation did. I'd like to take another casual poll. Can I see a show of hands of how many of you talk or text to your parents every day? Okay, I'd say probably three quarters of the room. So not everybody, but probably three quarters of the room. That's a shift. Uh, research on attitudes show that young people today in the workforce, they expect their supervisors to act uh, more like their parents um, and more like a coach. And because of that, they're very used to having these very close relationships with the mentors in their lives. And because of that, they share way too much of what's going on in their personal lives. They'll share the details or the nature of relationships, you know, the crazy night that happened last night at the bars and the details of what all your friends were doing. And if you're talking to an eager audience, and somebody's listening intently and thinking that the details are so interesting, and then what happened? You know, you can be tempted to think that this kind of oversharing is okay, but this is a professional environment. You want to keep it professional. You need to consider how you want your colleagues to remember you when you leave this relationship and when you leave this internship and what you want them to say about you when you're trying to get your next job. So think about it this way. Eight months pass. Your supervisor gets a call about you, and a lot has happened to your supervisor since then. So a lot of other people have come into the office, a lot of work has happened. Uh, they will remember whatever the most memorable thing about you was. So I went ahead and jotted down a few phrases uh, that I remembered of interns that have come through offices I've worked at. So here are a few of the phrases I jotted down. Okay, hooked up with another intern. Wore revealing clothing, wore too much makeup, was always tired, was always late, didn't finish that project I gave him, now shift to some positive, great at the podium, always asked what she could do to help, always the first one in the office in the morning, always smiling. See, when there are so many interns that come through a certain office environment, there's just not going to be a lot of room for, for nuance um, to describe you to somebody else when they get that call, um, when you put that person on a reference to be called for the next job. Okay, we are at number five. The fifth way to sabotage your career, and for some of you, even though this is probably the easiest to understand, um, this will be the hardest for some of you, and that is to complain. So to complain about anything, that you're tired or hungry or cold, uh, to complain about a roommate or a coworker, or to complain that you're making less money than another coworker. Goodness gracious, people share way too much about how much of the money they're making their coworkers, and it creates all sorts of problems. Please do not share your salary with other people. It only creates problems. Complain about your supervisor, because I'm sure what you say to your supervisor is never going to get back to your supervisor. Never complain about your supervisor. Uh, complain that work is boring, that you didn't go to college, answer phones. You know, complain that you have no money. 
because guess what? Chances are that no matter what it is that you're going through, it is going to be insignificant to what your supervisor is dealing with at that moment. And all you're really doing is annoying the older people in your office at this point. You know, I will never forget one intern that we had. Um, at this point, I was pregnant with my fifth child, okay? So if I'm pregnant with my fifth child, that means I have four young children at home that I have to deal with, uh, that I have to feed and get dressed before I get into the office. So I'm all pregnant, eight months pregnant at this point, and we have a, uh, an intern, a college student in our office, and every single time I see this college student, they say, oh, how are you? I'm tired. Doesn't matter what. I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. Say, oh, I had a late night the last night, I'm so tired. Oh, the interns yesterday were over the weekend, I had to do this, this, and that, and I'm tired. So he left the internship, didn't think about him again, didn't get a call about his references, uh, and then I saw him on a plane um, years later, on our way out to the Reagan Ranch, he was coming out to the ranch, oh, it's so good to see you, how are you? I'm not kidding, he said he was tired. <laughs> now, he needs to pick a different phrase. Get a go-to phrase. I will tell you that early in my career, my go-to phrase was great, no matter what happened to me that day. And like I said, I had a lot of pregnancies early on. Sometimes I felt very, very sick. Sometimes I was really, really tired. Maybe I wasn't having the best morning I ever had. But you know what? In the grand scheme of things, I was doing great. It wasn't a dishonest reply. But I had one colleague we used to always make fun of you. Kimberly, you're always great. You're always great. Every time I ask you, you're always great. That is the right answer. If you want to steal my phrase, steal it. You're great. <laughs> you know, on the point of you don't know what is going on with your older colleagues, I just want to give you kind of an idea of what might be going on with your colleagues. And these are kind of, you know, more grown-up issues that really at this point in your life, you know, I'm sure some of you go through different, more difficult times than others. But one thing that you learn that only age and wisdom can show you is that the struggles of usually somebody in their 40s or 50s or 60s can be a lot more difficult than you know, whatever it is you're dealing with with your roommate or um, with a certain work issue that just developed in the office. Uh, your older colleague, your supervisor, could have been up all night with a sick child. Um, they could have real financial worries. They can have marital problems, um, which can be very upsetting for some people, for everybody who has marital problems. They can have a child struggling at school, or a child with a serious illness, um, or have ailing older parents. And you know what? Even if they're not going through something that is kind of big, you know, even if they're just having a normal day and a normal experience, they are probably remembering what it was like to be your age and they're probably remembering having no money. They might be looking at your clothes and thinking, your clothes are nicer than I could afford. They might be thinking that you live in a nicer place with fewer roommates than they had. They might be thinking, must be nice to drink your lattes. I never drank fancy coffee drinks when I was your age. And they also might be remembering their own excitement about where they were in their career doing exactly what you were doing. They were excited to come to DC. They were excited to get involved, to have their first internship, to have their first job. And they were grateful. And they were happy to do whatever it is that needed to be done. And they're gonna look at your complaining as a character defect. So I have a suggestion, I have some advice for you. Now for all of you, and some of you, this is gonna be super easy. Others, it's gonna be harder. 
try to go the rest of the day. So when you leave here today, try to go, or better yet, even before you leave, don't complain. Uh, try to go the rest of the day without complaining. If you try this, some of you might be surprised by how short a time it takes to catch yourself and realize that you're complaining about something. And then, you know what? Try it all over again tomorrow. And, you know, every once in a while, see if you can challenge yourself to do this again because you will realize <coughs> maybe you are complaining about um, things that really aren't that bad. And it'll really uh, help your whole outlook because you will find that your words and your attitudes um, can be changed, that you are in control of them. And it can shape not only how other people perceive you, but how you perceive yourself and your own, and your own attitude. So, talked a lot about how you can sabotage your career. I want to talk just for a minute about how you can shine. You know, one point I want to make is that all of you up until this point, you've had this really interesting experience where you've always moved up as a class. So, when you graduate from kindergarten, everyone's excited, you all go to first grade. You graduate all through elementary school. For the most part, most of you who graduated uh, high school went on to some college or another. And really the top of the class, the person who graduates at the top of the class and the person who gets the worst grades, you all have moved up at the same rate. And I think that that has influenced the way that a lot of young people feel about their internships. They also, they all arrive at the internship at the same time and you're all for the most part treated very similarly and as a group. Well, your career is not a group exercise. It is all about you individually and in fact, the goal for you is not to move up as a group. The goal for you is to actually outperform the other people in your office. You want to shine because when your supervisor gets that call and you're asked about, you need to be able to differentiate yourself from all the other interns that you are um, working with. So in order to set yourself apart, I recommend try to be joyful, be eager to help, uh, be hardworking, Get to the office early, don't be late, and don't even get there exactly on time. Get there a good five or 10 minutes early. Stay five or 10 minutes late or more if necessary. You know, you wanna be the person that your supervisor goes to when they have something important that needs to get done. This is how you advance your career. You know, one point I wanna make is I was recently interviewed for this position of head of school that was really very exciting for me. And I had to go through this four, uh, four interviews, this, this very extensive, rigorous process. In addition, they called all my references, uh, but they also went one step further than that. And it just so happens, because it is such a small world, and trust me, our circles are smaller than you can even imagine, that there were a whole lot of people in my life, personally and professionally, who knew a whole lot of people on the board of this school. So lots of conversations were had. And I was fortunate enough to have made good decisions over the last 20 years. Something easily could have derailed this whole process for me. Um, but I was very, very grateful to the people who gave me the good references and really very grateful for some of the very good decisions that I had made along the way. So you want to remember that. You just never know. And you want the, 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 the good process, the good habits, uh, to carry over into all aspects of your life. The best piece of advice that I can give you is to surround yourself with good people both in your personal life and also at work. These are peers, uh, people that you're with every day, and mentors. 
I'll tell you, one of the most important people in my life was a peer. There's actually a woman who uh, worked at the Center for Conservative Women, somebody I always admired. Um, and she was the, the person in my life who got me going back to church, and that's how I met my husband. And, you know, I really owe a lot to her. Um, one thing that I, I think you need to uh, practice doing is to discriminate about the people that you're spending your time with. If there's a peer, uh, you know, somebody that, that you look up to for some reason or a leader telling you to do something uh, that's, that you know is wrong or embarrassing, like these poor kids at Kent State were the diapers. Did you see this, the conservative? You know, if, 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 you, if somebody is telling you to do something embarrassing that you just know is not right, you should, you should stay away. And you should be selective to go to the groups and the leaders um, who are giving you good advice and who are really looking out for you and your career. The Center for Conservative Women is a fantastic resource. I highly recommend that you continue to be involved in this excellent organization. Um, Young America's Foundation, also just an amazing, amazing organization, completely changed my life. Um, and I advise you to find a mentor. Uh, for me, you know, two mentors who have just meant the world to me, Michelle Eason, um, and Ron Robinson at Young America's Foundation. Ask advice of mentors um, and take that advice and take it to heart because uh, your mentors are looking out for you. But I would just recommend that you find the joy in working hard and living a good, good and healthy and uh, virtuous life. I'm happy to take any questions you have. Catherine and I go to the Catholic University of America and my question is about um, networking and maintaining uh, a relationship with mentors or people that you meet early on in your career yes yes that's so important in fact I was just recently in touch with uh, one of my uh, very early mentors and just looking back to how much um, I have changed since then um, but, but I think that keeping in touch with the people in your life who make a difference every step of the way is actually hugely important. And you know, today it's easier than ever to keep in touch over um, over over email, over Facebook. Do, now, do, do most of you have Facebook accounts still, or is that something that people don't do anymore? Most of you have Facebook accounts still. You know, keeping in touch that way, but but to let them know too along the way that the time that they spent with you and the help that they provided to you made a difference in your life. Um, is actually kind of huge because, you know, a lot of us at, at, at this point um, have spent a lot of time with a lot of young people. And those that take the time to pause and say, hey, I, I know you spent a lot of time, you know, doing this and this and that with me and thank you for the advice. It really does mean a lot to the people who know that they've spent a lot of time with you and know that they were there to mentor. So I would say, yes, keeping in touch with them is very important, but even more than keeping in touch, Tell them what they did specifically that was helpful to you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Renee Waller. I'm from Biola University. Uh, thank you for sharing just practical, helpful advice. Uh, one thing I've been thinking about is in the relationship you have with your supervisors and those who are working full-time, um, how much do you recommend or how should we interact with them generally? Mm -hmm. How much do we initiate conversation and getting coffee, getting lunch, that kind of thing? Yes, such a good question. The best 
statement you can ever utter is, how can I help? I'm here to help. I'm happy to help. Um, and just constantly be uh, open to doing whatever it is, no matter how insignificant you might think the task is. And you know what? That Those personal relationships will develop. So it might not be the first busy week. It might not be the second busy week. If you are the go-to person for any person in your office to help out whenever you need to and you're willing and you're happy, you're joyful, you're a pleasure to be around, you do good work, at some point, that older person is going to want to get to know you as a person, and they're going to be curious. You know, you, you're you're setting yourself apart from your peers here, from the other interns, the other young colleagues in the office. They're going to want to know your background, what made you like this, and they're going to start to take an interest in you, and they're going to start to want to help you in your career. So first of all, thank you so much for being here, Laura Williamson, interning with the Heritage Foundation. I was curious as to what to do in the situations where you have, say, a millennial supervisor or boss who actually expects more authenticity, a more informal relationship. How would you suggest navigating something like that that yeah. is a little bit uh, against the norms that we're talking about here, that the is traditionalism? A, that's a real, I'm really glad that you asked that question. That is an excellent question. Be selective in what you share. So yes, you can share, you know, share professional triumphs, share your professional um, dreams, if you will, share um, what makes sense in a professional setting. Just don't go into the areas of your life that are going to make you vulnerable um, to be, to make your reputation um, vulnerable, basically. So just don't, don't talk about the bars the night before, don't talk about your boyfriend, don't talk about your ex-boyfriend. Really, I would leave the issue of dating completely um, off the table when talking to anybody, anybody in the office. Um, hi, my name is Victoria Scott. I'm an intern reporter for The Hill newspaper. I recently graduated Rollins College last May, and I'm in that transition of trying to find a full-time job. I want your take on how persistent I should be when it comes to getting a job I really want. I've come across a couple circumstances where people say they'll email me back the following week and then they don't, so how long should you allow that delay before you follow up, or is it up to them to email you back when they say they will? That is such a good question. Okay, I was yeah. something. I am very, very guilty of not returning emails. Okay. And I'll tell you why, because they just, every email looks the exact same as everyone else, and then they just pile up. And really, for anybody who travels, it's almost impossible because by the time you land, and you might be in the air for five or more hours, and by the time you land, your inbox just gets so filled up. So first of all, it can be very, very easy to overlook an email, or if you're doing something else at the time and you just don't, you're just not free enough to, 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 to return an email at that point, it's really easy to forget about it. So I would say, yes, be persistent, but also say try something else other than email. So writing a handwritten note, um, thanking them, or yeah, I would say a handwritten note probably makes a lot of sense. A lot of people don't do that. It's, it's a way that you can stand out um, at this point. That used to be the norm back when I was looking for a job to put something in the mail. Uh, and it shows that you really want it. It shows you're willing to make a little bit of an effort to find a stamp. Um, so I, I, would, I would recommend that. And somebody's going to feel a little guilty, by the way, if they get a handwritten note. And then you email them and say, hey, did you get my note? At that point, I would be very surprised if they don't email you back. So okay. I would say send the handwritten note and then send a follow-up email and say, did you get my handwritten note? Okay, thank you. Thanks. 
All right. Else? Thank you.